We're going to be jumping right into Deuteronomy chapter 12. Will you pray with me as we get started through our worship, um, through study uh, in our time together tonight? Jesus, thank you, Lord, so much for this opportunity to come together. I thank you for every single person in this room and sparkers who are listening online or not able to join us today. We are grateful to be in community with one another and community with you. And right now we ask that our hearts would be turned towards you, that we would have ears that hear and eyes that see as we seek to understand you and our experience of you in this world um, through the study of your word. We ask it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 12. These are the statutes and ordinances that you must diligently observe in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given to you to occupy all the days that you live on earth. Uh, For those of you not familiar, Moses is speaking and he's talking to the Israelites and they are not yet in the land of Israel. They're on their way. Um, So on their way, they're having conversation and here they go. You must demolish completely all the places where the nations whom you are about to dispossess served their gods. On the mountain heights, on the hills, and under every leafy tree. Break down their altars, smash their pillars, burn their Asherah poles with fire, and hew down the idols of their gods, and thus blot out their name from their places. I just want to sit tight for a minute. I recognize the cognitive dissonance. After I've just said, let's go have justice for people that we don't yet know who are coming into our land. And then we're going to let's blot out their names forever. Stick with me. We're going to keep reading our text. Yeah. You shall not worship the Lord your God in such ways, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes as his habitation to put his name there. You shall go there bringing your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your donations, your vote of gifts, your free will offerings, and the firstlings of your herds and flocks. And you shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your households together, rejoicing in all the undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not act as we are acting here today, all of us according to our own desires. For you have not yet come into the rest and the possession that the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is allotting to you, and when he gives you rest from your enemies all around so that you live in safety, then you bring, you shall bring everything that I commanded you to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and your donations, and all your choice votive gifts that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you together with your sons and your daughters, your male and female slaves, and the Levites who reside in your towns, since they have no allotment or inheritance with you. And then it continues on for the rest of the chapter, so please go and read. Okay, That's going to be the end of our reading for today. The title of our message this afternoon is When You then you. Got it? When you, then you. See, Deuteronomy chapter 12 summarized very quickly is going to focus specifically on three commands. Canaanite places of worship must be destroyed. Israel may perform sacrificial worship at only one place, TBD, right? God will tell you this when he knows. We don't know yet exactly. Jerusalem's not mentioned yet here. Non-sacrificial slaughter is permitted for those living at a distance from the chosen place. Remember, Moses says, hey, you're not going to live 
as you're living right now. Things are about to change, and the way we're doing it now is not going to be the way that we're going to do it when we get into this new land. Chapter, 20, chapter 12 uses 27 verses to cover just those rules repeatedly. From a strictly legal point of view, much of this is unnecessary, right? Here are the three rules. We just got that covered very quickly. In fact, the temple scroll from Qumran, which was written down just before the time of Jesus, a couple centuries, conveys the essence of the chapter in 11 short lines. And yet in Deuteronomy chapter 12, even though they have 27 verses dealing with all of that, they actually never talk about what it means to live at a distance. How far does that mean? So then they decided in the temple scroll just before the time of Jesus that living at a distance meant a three days journey from the temple. So this meant that anyone who wanted to eat meat, you had to, if you had to have three days journey, maybe like I walk very slow, it's at least three days. You have three days journey out. If you were within three days to the temple, you couldn't sacrifice anywhere but the place where God was going to put his name, TBD, right? So in all of this chapter 12, we find out that God, not humans, God chooses how God is to be worshiped. You humans, as you've been doing this your own way or in a variety of different ways as we've been wandering about in the wilderness, in temporary dwelling places and shelter, God is now going to choose how God wants to be worshipped. Not how we want to do it, but how God wants us to do it. And the whole point of that is that this is for us, right? God's not hungry. God doesn't need our sacrifices. God's not going, God's not going hungry for our lack of sacrificial offering. In fact, right in this place, when it talks about like rejoice and rejoice, it's literally like you shall celebrate. Deuteronomy emphasizes that sacrifices provided occasions for celebration over God's bounty, which in the principal ceremonial means that we are recognized by the book for thanking God. These occasions serve to inculcate love and reverence for God, stressing the effect the offerings have on people rather than any effect they may have on God. This is for us. We're to come together, we're to celebrate, we're to remember who gave us our good things, and we're to give God these offerings. In fact, the limitation of sacrificial worship to a single place is the most unique and far-reaching law in the book of Deuteronomy. This is going to be a very new thing. It affected the religious life of all the individuals, the sacrificial system, and the way festivals were going to be celebrated, and it affected the economic status of the Levites and even the judicial system. God wants all the people to come together in one place. This is going to impact everyone, regardless of any economic status. Everyone has to go and offer in this place. Now, if you're hungry and you want meat a different time of year, fine. You can do that, and there's going to be instructions for that, but you have to be at least three days' distance from the temple in order to have that allowed. Maybe people were like moving further away, right? So they could have, most people didn't eat a lot of meat in this time, right? I mean, most of your animals you kept around to continue to sustain you throughout the year. Now, a couple other unique things just to look at this passage before we dive into a little bit of maybe some implications for today. The Bible does not require Israel to engage in a worldwide campaign against idolatry. Israel is not commanded to go out to the entire world and say, you're worshiping an idol, you're worshiping an idol, you're worshiping an idol, smash, 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 right? Israel is just to do this in the land that God is giving them, in the land of the Canaanites. And specifically, we're told that Israel is to do this because if they don't, they're going to be lured into those same ways of the Canaanites. And if you continue to read through the rest of chapter 12, it's going to talk about how the Canaanites are doing some pretty wretched stuff, right? Including offering up their children into the fire. 
So God is concerned about how we go into this land and what sort of road signs are around us that we permit to continue to be in our, in our space in this land that is this land between. Now here at Spark, we like to deal with tough topics. And so at other sermons we've dealt with, well, what about the Canaanites and why is it okay for God to kick them out? And what are we going to do with all that? And to that, I recommend you listen to the podcast and we'll, we're sort of accumulating. We have some thoughts on that. Okay. I think also God recognizes that when we move into space, and this is true throughout the world, that sacred space replaces sacred space. And this is true at the most iconic place that any of us could probably picture in terms of the place to go and worship, where ultimately Israel will go, where God will put God's name, Jerusalem. Now, when you look at Jerusalem today and you sit on that horizon line up on the Mount of Olives and you glance towards this amazing city, you can see the Temple Mount platform that was built by King Herod in Jesus's day. But where is your eye immediately drawn to? It's immediately drawn to that beautiful golden dome, the Dome of the Rock. Now, just for those of you playing at home. The Al-Aqsa Mosque is right down here. It's that longer brown building just past the trees, like the roof goes there, and then there's a small dome. And just on the other side of that wall is the most holy space in Judaism today, which is the Western Wall, or often used to be called by the moniker the Wailing Wall, because it was the only place remaining after Rome destroyed the temple that used to sit right where that dome sits now. And just beyond that dome in the picture, I can see the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the place where most scholars believe the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus occurred. Now, in Jesus' day, it would have looked a little bit more like this, where that dome of the rock was. You see the holy of holies of the Temple Mount right up there used to sit right there. And when Rome came in in 70 CE and destroyed it, and then completed that destruction again later on in 135 CE, they replaced that holy space with holy space. In fact, even at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in 135 CE, Hadrian was like, you know what? There's this group of followers of Jesus that are remembering this guy and thinking about this place, and we can't have them coming here and doing that, so we're going to replace that holy space with a temple to Jupiter. That didn't go over very well, but it was there for a short time. We can see, even though Hadrian tried to replace that holy space, that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre kind of won that argument. And where the Temple Mount was then, after that destruction occurred, later on, as Christianity spread, Christians started to move into that space, and it looks like maybe there were some Christians hanging out in that Temple Mount space. But just before 700 CE, the Muslims came in and they said, no, this is going to be our holy space. And we have a tradition that tells us that Muhammad came here in a vision. So now this is our holy space. And then you guys remember the Crusades and how we just wanted, like, that's this bad chapter of Christian history and let's just never talk about it and we don't mention it at the holidays. But in fact, one of the reasons why the Crusades started was because Christians in Jerusalem were being persecuted and they were not able to worship anymore. And so they wrote letters saying to the European Christians, please come help us. And so then they did. Admittedly, it was a terrible, terribly executed war. But when they got to Jerusalem, they freed that space that had been earlier, again, Jewish space and then Christian space and then Muslim space. And they turned it back 
into a Christian church for a little while until then they lost Jerusalem and, and then the Muslims came back in and made sure that it was going to be their sacred space. You see, sacred space replaces sacred space, replaces sacred space. And I think that's part of what the author of Deuteronomy is contending with. You're going to go into this land and there are already places there that are already created with memory that have been worshiping these various different gods the Baals and the Asherahs and Molech and others. And so we need to make sure that those places aren't replaced, but are destroyed. It's a different, interesting nuance. So what were high places and how did that function in this ancient Near Eastern world? And what does Israel see when they walk into this land? Well, one of the most famous high places you can see when you walk into the land of Israel today is one of my favorite spots on our our Israel tour, is the Canaanite high place of Gezer. There are these massive standing stones just sort of out in the middle of nowhere, it feels like, although it's quite strategic for the day. And these stones, we don't know why they're there. There's no literature attached to it. There's no, you know, so-and-so was here and I, I lifted up this big giant stone because there's nothing there that's attached to it. We don't have any, any text for it. But certainly when you stop and you see it, you're like, whoa, something important happened here, right? I mean, that's a lot of effort to just lift a stone for no good reason. Um, so then they have like a libation center. Something happened there at that high place. So maybe the high places looked a little like this. Oftentimes at various different excavation sites in the land between in Israel, we have found replicas or idols of these gods, um, whether it's Asherah or Baal or different animal figurines. These different gods, by the way, they tend to be about this big, more like pocket size. Like, uh, it's an eye god. I'm just joking. Um, <clears throat> Hands-free device. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so when you would go into these different areas and excavate, you would start to see these different sort of idols or something that was in that place. And we found lots of them. And you can go to the Israel Museum and see a whole bunch of them today. But certainly when you start to see these, can't you immediately tell that, that this would be against the very prohibitions of Deuteronomy where God starts, right? Particularly even in Exodus when God starts with the Ten Commandments at the foot of Mount Sinai. Like, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a likeness unto me. And then Israel's going to walk in. They're like, wow, this land, this place, they already have gods here and they already have form and they can be seen. And that's going to be something that Israel's going to have to contend with. Now, the way that I always understood my biblical story is sort of that the Israelites heard these beautiful words from Moses in the book of Deuteronomy and went, check, got it. No other gods. We're cool. No problem. And then when Joshua walks into the land, he goes in, conquers the whole thing. Yeah, right? Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. It's awesome. Everything worked. People were like, oh, it's your land now. No problem. I'll go. They left very peacefully. I'm just joking. So, you know, there's this big takeover of the land. And I kept thinking then at that point, because when you go and do Sunday school, you just get the highlights, right? So it's like Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. They took over the land. There's this ragtag judges time. Things were a little bit hairy. We're all cool with that. We understand. So then we had, at that time, we just had like this roving tabernacle in Shiloh. It wasn't quite working with us. We tried to sell the Ark of the Covenant, tried to like use it in a, in a battle to try to get what we wanted. It got stolen, all this mess. Eventually, 
eventually Saul, eventually David, eventually Solomon's going to build a house, right? And then that, then all of Israel's like, got it. That's where God's going to put God's name. Understand, cool, no other gods. If only it were that simple. You see, none of that actually is the case. And in 1 Kings chapter 3, we find out as Solomon, who is the one that's permitted to build God's house because David had blood on his hands, who is not permitted to build a house for God. Solomon's going to go and build a house for God. And it says in 1 Kings 3 that Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That was actually Gezer, that place with the high place, the big stones, that was given as a dowry by Pharaoh of Egypt to Solomon. So Solomon makes a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter, brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, this is at the time of Solomon's reign, the people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, only he sacrificed and offered incense at high places. Okay, so then you're kind of like, get this little hint, like, well, maybe the problem is they just don't have a nice house yet. If they just had the nice house, and they had the priest, and everyone could kind of get things in order, then they would stop offering things up at the high place. So Solomon builds this beautiful, amazing, incredible house. He expands the kingdom massively. He's using slave labor to do it. He's having these incredible imports coming on in. And in 1 Kings chapter 11, after the dedication of the temple, so they got the house, right? Things should be set. Solomon says this, and I'm just going to, I know it's big, but let me just think. Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite. He's like a, you know, no respecter of persons. He'll just take any woman, any woman, foreign woman, no problem. Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the Israelites, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for they will surely incline your heart to follow their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. Among his wives were 700 princesses and 300 concubines. This is a massive hashtag me too movement. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon followed Astarte, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not completely follow the Lord as father David had done. And then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, that's the one you sacrifice your children in the fire for, the abomination of the Ammonites, and on the mountain east of Jerusalem. East of Jer- right there, east of Jerusalem. And he did the same for all his foreign wives who offered incense and sacrifice to their gods. This, again, is the most wise person in all of Israel who has written our book of Proverbs, right? We have this idea that Israel, as they move forward, they, they're magical somehow. They're magical biblical people, and they just had these words from God, and they believed them, and then they did them, and things, this myth of progress that things move forward as they should. But it didn't, and the Bible tells us so. But we never talk about it. Because we don't like to talk about, we don't air dirty laundry, right? I mean, this is when you are at your high school reunion, you don't say, oh, by the way, I flunked this class, right? I did terrible at, you know, thou shalt not make any other gods like me, right? I did terrible at that, I got an F. Right? We don't talk about our failures. We talk about the high points. And unfortunately, pastors, Sunday school teachers, uh, the great biblical stories that come out every PBS season for like, you know, Christmas and Easter, they never talk about the realities that our Bible tells us happened. In fact, it's so horrible that in 2 Kings chapter 18, Hezekiah, King Hezekiah starts to institute some reforms. 
Now, King Hezekiah, there's a series of good kings and bad kings and mostly bad in the north and some more good in the south, but still everyone's kind of a mess. But at the beginning of 2 Kings chapter 18, it says this. Then in the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel in the north, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He's 25 years old. And as he's doing, he says, ah, I'm going to remove the high places, verse 4, smash down the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, and up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord of the God. There's been no king like him since. He holds fast to God. And it's so significant to Hezekiah's reign that he has done this, that when King Sennacherib of Assyria in the north comes and lays siege to Jerusalem, he sends the people people to go to the wall and say, hey, why are you trusting Hezekiah? Isn't he the guy that cut down all those high places? Surely no God will protect you. You've sort of made the gods angry here in this land. So pagan worship or non-Israelite worship was known for worshiping multitude of gods in a lot of different places. And Israelite worship under Hezekiah had become known for trying to centralize worship to the place where God put God's name and trying to tear down those high places. In fact, we have some hints of Hezekiah's reforms happening at this beautiful, incredible place south towards the Negev um, called Arad, Tel Arad. It's mentioned in the book of Numbers. And this fortress is from the Iron Age period, from the period of the kings. And if you go and hike up to the top of the forest, or, or you can get that bus ride up to the top, but you go and hike up to the top of the fortress, if we get that aerial view, you start to look in, and there is an Israelite, Judahite, holy space. And the proportions there are very, very similar to those that God tells should be in place in Jerusalem. But it's not Jerusalem, y'all. It's way down south. And as you move further in, you see an altar that's there. And then you see a holy of holies precinct. And there we have two incense altars, one big, one small, and two standing stones, one big, one small. Why? When archaeologists found this place, they found that it had been destroyed carefully, almost respectfully, like, like the people who were there here connected somehow, and this is Yahwistic worship, they connected somehow with God, the God of Israel, but they knew that the place wasn't correct, and so they tipped the stones over gently. They tipped the incense altars over gently and covered them up gently. So when archaeologists walked in and started digging when Aharoni did this in the 60s and 70s, they found something that had been respectfully destroyed. And they suggest, archaeologists are suggesting, this is part of King Hezekiah's reform. Because why too? Well, archaeologists are suggesting it's because this place, while very connected to Judah and very similar to the place we might find in Jerusalem in Solomon's day, had two gods they were worshiping. And Israel had done that synchronistic thing where they had taken the worship of the one true God of Israel, Yahweh, and they'd mixed it in with Asherah. And so we have these two gods. This is exactly what Deuteronomy is warning us against, isn't it? That when you get there, you're going to start to do this other thing. So it looks like, wow, good job, Hezekiah. You did a good job. You tore down some high places. It was hard for the people, but you started to do the good, hard thing. And then we find out that in 2 Kings 23, King Josiah, who becomes, who becomes king when he's eight years old, 
They discover the book of the law, the book of Deuteronomy, the Torah, and upon reading it, they're like, oi, right? Like we're doing a whole bunch of things that we shouldn't be doing. And so then Josiah institutes some new commands. Let me just note some things that Josiah has to do as he renews the covenant. He smashes to pieces and throws in the rubble into the Kidron Valley, which is right next to the Jerusalem temple, all of these different altars that the kings had put up. They have to, there's high places. He desecrated the high places that were east of Jerusalem on the southern hill, the one Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth. So apparently Hezekiah didn't do everything. And then he takes down all of these places, he smashes them, and he smashes down the sacred stones, cut down the Asher poles, covered with the sites now with human bones. But as he's doing this, you guys, he's finding things in the temple where there were temple prostitutes in the temple of Jerusalem with Asherah poles, with Asherah shrines. And he has to tear all that down. Now they have the Torah, don't they? They have the book. They've had these commands. So this is where scholars will have these debates. Well, did they really have it? Or are these words in Deuteronomy truly written and spoken by Moses at this time? Or were they spoken unto the name of Moses during the time of the reforms to try to explain at what point did Israel truly and really understand that they were supposed to have centralized worship in one place? I think I resonate with this story and I like this chapter in Deuteronomy so much because there are a lot of things that I have believed at various points in my life that needed some revisitation. You guys know lemmings don't commit mass suicide. That's not a thing. In fact, there's a children's book about it that says, like, read the book, Lemmings, because the Lemmings in the children's book keep trying to throw themselves off the cliff. And they're like, no, read the book. You don't actually do that. In fact, Lemmings have been so mythologically treated in our culture that in the 1530s, a geographer, Ziegler of Strasbourg, proposed the theory that the creatures fell out of the sky during stormy weather and then died suddenly when the grass grew in the spring. And people believed that. Like, oh, sure. Nobody had ever seen a lemming fall out of a sky in stormy weather. Like, I got that. That's not right. And then later on, like, no, that sounds insane. Of course they fall out of the sky. But they've been brought over by the wind. That's what makes more sense, right? So, like, this is just in the 1500s. When we have the expectation that the Israelites should have it all together and should have everything figured out and shouldn't have any connection to any other gods, shouldn't have any working their faith out with fear and trembling, we don't even examine our own insanity not that long ago where we thought lemmings fell down from the sky and then... You know, right? I mean, that's, that's nuts. I'll give you something more recent. You could say, well, that's the 1500s. They didn't have social media yet. Okay, fine. So my mom just had knee replacement surgery at Stanford this week. My dad had knee replacement surgery about 15 years ago. When he had knee replacement surgery 15 years ago, immediately falling, like getting right out of surgery, double knee replacements, they put him in this machine, which at that time is called the continuous passive motion machine, and now they call it the constant pain machine. Your knees have just been replaced. They strap you this machine, and they just passively bicycle your feet. They have found that there's no benefit at all to this except to cause constant pain. And so my dad, only 15 years ago at the same hospital, not some backwoods, at Stanford, had to go through the constant pain machine. My mom has her knee replaced. Somebody like, yeah, no, don't do that. Just rest. There's no benefit to that at all. In just 15 years, we've learned something and things have changed, right? This is the when you know better, then you do better. 
And we need to allow the people in our lives to do this too. The constant shaming and mining for the one mistake that one person did a long time ago and the inability for that person to come back, to ask for forgiveness, to say that they got it wrong. This is what our social media loop has become, hasn't it? We find that one flaw, that one person, it makes the rest of us scared to even say our very name. Maybe I got that wrong. Maybe I shouldn't say my name. I don't know. Did my parents really name me that? We're going to freak out, right? Like, I am so afraid of saying anything. Have you guys ever, anyone really tried to, tried to tweet and put out, like, anyone like me, like, where I'm like, no. Okay, I'll, no. Okay, I'll just, no, delete. I'm just not, I just back away entirely because I'm so afraid of the crazy and the constancy of the, you didn't get this right and you didn't do that right. And the nitpicking, we can't live like this anymore. That name, that constant shaming that we're finding happening. This is what we do in our culture and our society. And yet I think the Bible is saying, don't do that. Let people be in their moment in time. Let them tell that story. And yes, you're right. Today, standing here, looking back, Solomon is a hot mess. Probably that time too. Everyone's like, he's a mess, right? And the Bible kind of says that. But, but we can at least allow people to grow and get better. And when it's our own self, right? We're like, sometimes I get things wrong. How worrying William deals with shame right? The fear that you have gotten something wrong and it becomes paralyzing and you'll never get it right again. And this happens so much in our Christian faith. So much so that as people have processed and started looking at, but I can't believe I used to believe that thing, that we get afraid to believe or move into anything. We, we are paralyzed. We, we can't move into any position of certainty. Well, what do I know? If I don't know that, what do I know? And I'm afraid of getting it wrong, and I don't know what to do. Maya Angelou, with the loosely attributed quote, again, that's the thing we kind of talk about like when we talk about these things, but I did then what I knew how to do, and now that I know better, I do better. There's such freedom in that. I love that here in the book of Deuteronomy, it says, when you get here, then you will change this thing that you're doing. You're not going to be able to do all the stuff that you've already done, but you're changing, Israel. You're learning, you're growing, just like the rest of us. And when you then you faith requires patience and humility and grace and forgiveness and love. I, mean, our, I think our most famous passage on love is the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We say it at weddings. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant. Oh, if only... Social media could be ruled by this, right? Or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Oh my goodness. How much do we just rejoice in wrongdoing in our culture? Right? I found the one thing that that one leader or that one politician said, and it's going to somehow... I mean, Howard Dean, this is a long time ago, right? You remember he did that one, woohoo! And everyone's like, that's it, you're out, right? I mean, it was just saying, he did that one weird scream and nobody could have him anymore. It was like, that was it, disqualified him, right? But love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Uh, when you, then you, faith allows for love to be present. It allows for transformation to be present. Love and humility then anticipates progressive revelation. Because this is how 1 Corinthians 13 continues, you guys. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they'll come to an end. 
As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. Like what you know now, Israel, is not what you will do then. For we only know in part. And we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I've been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, the greatest of these is love. Right? When, when we have a when you, then you faith that is characterized by love, it's characterized by humility and an awareness that we don't know fully yet. There's a, a church in Colorado, and I apologize, I cannot remember the name, but they have a statement of faith on their website. And it says, we believe, and then parentheses says, for now. Now, I think the crazy, the, I don't want to say, the more conservative me 20 years ago would have been like, they are wishy-washy. They don't believe. And I use conservative. I feel conservative. I'm laughing. I don't know what that means. Those terms are so loaded. The me of 20 years ago would have thought that's wishy-washy. The me of today looks at that and says, I think there's hope that people who are leading in an area of the divine have said to themselves, I'm going to check myself. I might not fully know and understand the mind of God. When you then you faith ushers in new beginnings. It ushers in a new us. We have all these stories with Jesus, right? John chapter four, John chapter eight and more, right? The woman at the well gets, okay, that's what you've done before. When you were this, you did that, but now you're going to do this, right? The woman who's caught in adultery. Okay. That's how you lived before when you were this, but now go sin no more. The apostle Paul is like the best example of the when you, then you, right? He's like, I know what's best. I'm going to go persecute this crazy cult. They are definitely drawing all the people away. And then he has this amazing, incredible experience of, of redemption and revelation and repentance and a prophetic call. And he's like, oh, when that happens, then you end up becoming the apostle. Deconstructing and discovering are part of our historical faith journey. This is part of who we get to be. When we want to wrestle and talk about decolonization of our faith, this is not something new. This is something we've been doing for millennia. This is part of our faith tradition. When we look at reworking our faith with fear and trembling, we will find that it is central to our Bible story. I think there's a lot of times where people want to say, well, that's because it's the journey, not the destination. And then you're going to find somebody else who's going to say, it's not the journey, it is the destination. And then we're going to say, yeah, it's both and. It is the journey and it is the destination. We're always going to be working this out with fear and trembling. We're always going to be needing to ask the questions, did I get it right and can I get it better? And for those of us in this room who've been asking those big questions, I bet each one of us here has some issue that we've shifted on completely. Whether it is understanding better racial justice, whether it is being a better follower of Jesus by loving our LGBTQI brothers and sisters, whether it was 21 years ago when Kevin and I were first dating and he said, what are you doing here at this Bible college? I said, I'm going to be a pastor. He said, you can't be a pastor. You're a woman. And I said, (laughs) right. And I said, we won't date. And that week he changed his position. So all of those things, (laughs) we all are part (laughs) 
Maybe you've been part of an unexamined marriage that is continuing to hold on to complementarianism and not move to egalitarianism. And I mean this sincerely. Like maybe you've been part of a marriage where you've walked in and, and theologically you're like, yeah, no, we're equal, we're, everything's cool, but you have taken on the mantle of this is the traditional role for the man and this is the traditional role for the female. Anyone? And maybe that's just gone unexamined. And maybe it's great. Or maybe it's a source of hurt and pain, and we need to shift and move on these things. All of these things, from very small things of how we parent, or how we engage at work, or how we deal with our spouse, or how we engage with our church, or how we work on social media, or simply, and this is not simple at all, how we read our Bible, and how we engage with the Jesus that we know today, who loves everyone and has a radical welcome for everyone. How we do that is shifting and changing and needs reexamination. I just wanted you guys to be encouraged that the when you, then you faith is part of your journey. It's part of the very fabric of who you and I get to be. We get to ask questions. We get to change how we practice our faith. We get to continue to wrestle it out in fear and trembling because right now we see darkly and dimly. But someday we'll know in part. I'm not suggesting in any way this means you're tossing everything out. I just mean be comforted. And also, you're not special if you're asking big questions or shifting how you worship in massive ways. You're part of a very long tradition that allows and encourages us to ask those big questions and wrestle with a big God. And in all of it, Jesus has ushering in for us new beginnings, new ways of life. I want to invite you all to the table, this radical welcome that Jesus has in our life. We're all are welcome at this table, every single one of us. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed, and broke it, saying to his disciples, Take and eat. This is my body given for you, and do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Come, the table's prepared. All are welcome.